0: Invading Taiwan would be kind of a tough thing. Taiwan is an island the size of Maryland. It's mountainous in the west. It's densely populated in massive urban areas in the east. There are only a couple of good landing places. There are only a couple of months when the the seas are amenable to a cross-strait invasion. It's about 150 miles across. Now, If they're looking at a full invasion and subjugation of Taiwan, it's not clear to me that they could pull it off. It'd be a rude awakening for them. That is analogous to the rude awakening that the Russians had with the reinvasion of Ukraine.
1: Before we start today's conversation, just one housekeeping note. In our next episode, we have Tyler Cowen coming on the podcast, who's the host of one of my favorite podcasts called Conversations with Tyler. He also runs Marginal Revolution, which if you do not read Marginal Revolution, the economics blog, you must. I highly recommend it. He's done a bunch of other things. He's one of the greatest teachers I know on everything from markets and economics to the future of technology and now artificial intelligence. We're going to talk about a lot of topics with Tyler. If you have a question for him, please send it to dan at unlocked.fm. That's dan at unlocked.fm. Dot F-M. Please keep your question to under 30 seconds. Just record it as a voice memo and send it in, and we will pick a couple of them to ask Tyler in our next episode. And now into today's show. General H.R. McMaster is known to be able to break down succinctly just about any military operational scenario. But it's not just military operations and strategy that he can unpack. H.R. McMaster also has a deep sense of history of military affairs, And he served at the most senior levels of government, developing and implementing a national security strategy. And he's also commanded troops on the front lines in military theaters around the world. Upon graduation from West Point in 1984, H.R. served as a commissioned officer in the U.S. Army for 34 years. He retired as a Lieutenant General in June of 2018. He had many posts in the military, too many to list here. We'll post them all in the show notes but he commanded the Combined Joint Interagency Task Force in Kabul in Afghanistan from 2010 to 2012. He commanded the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment in Iraq from 2005 to 2006. That's actually where the model for the surge, what ultimately became the surge strategy in Iraq, was first tested. And it was back in the early years of the Iraq War that I first met General McMaster in Baghdad. It wasn't his first time in Iraq. He was also deployed in Operation Desert Storm from 1990 to 1991. H.R. holds a Ph.D. in military history. He was an assistant professor of history at West Point. He's the author of numerous best-selling books, including Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World, and also Dereliction of Duty, Lyndon Johnson, Robert McNamara, The Joint Chiefs of Staff, and The Lies That Led to Vietnam. A few books have had more of an influence on me and my worldview and how I think about the government and civilian military relations than hr's dereliction of duty i highly recommend it we'll post the link to that as well in the show notes he's also the host of battlegrounds which is a podcast inspired by the name of his book it's called battlegrounds international perspectives on crucial challenges and opportunities and he's a regular on goodfellas a podcast produced by the hoover institution i highly recommend you subscribe to both of these He teaches at Stanford University, where he's affiliated with Hoover. He also teaches at the business school at Stanford, and he's the chair of an advisory board at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. So a lot here to learn from HR. As we return to an age of geopolitical conflict, are our business leaders and policymakers and the markets and the media undervaluing geopolitical risk? Real geopolitical risk, where things could really unravel soon, not off in the distance, but 2025 or 2026? That's what we get into today with General H.R. McMaster. This is Call Me Back. And I'm pleased to welcome to this podcast my longtime friend and sort of intellectual mentor, even though he doesn't know it, uh, retired General H.R. McMaster, former National White House National Security Advisor, historian, host of one of the best podcasts i listen to on on military affairs and global affairs called battlegrounds we'll put the link to it in the show notes and also co-host of one of my favorite podcasts goodfellas and um and the author of several books but one of which had a huge influence uh on my thinking i read about a decade ago, decade and a half ago, dereliction of duty, which we'll talk about uh, near the end of this conversation. HR, thanks for joining us.
0: Hey, Dan, great to be with you. And man, this is a great podcast. Thanks so, so much for the service you're providing here.
1: Thank you. Thanks for thanks for doing this. We've had a number of offline conversations over the years. So, uh, so I appreciate you willing to do one of these uh, online. I hope you are as candid as in the, uh, in the online as you are on the offline, but totally understand if you have to be
0: <laughs> more restrained, you're will be candid. That's, that's why I was only, I think in the white house for 13 months. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So, so let's jump into it. I, I, one thing I mentioned to you offline is I was, um, <clears throat> recently having lunch with a friend of mine who has done, um, let's call it a lot of geopolitical, uh, uh, engage in a lot of geopolitical advisory work one way or the other, um, and has the ear of a number of, uh, business, business leaders, and has been doing it for a number of years. And he said that he used to tell business leaders that they were over valuing and over interpreting geopolitical risk. That is to say the reality is the nature of flare-ups in geopolitics you know, as, as as horrendous and awful and traumatic and gut-wrenching as a terrorist attack may be in any part of the world, he argued the reality is he would tell business leaders it's not going to affect the macro global economy that much. It's not really going to have long-term impact on the markets. It may have short-term impact, but not long-term or even medium-term impact. Uh, and that you're you business leaders you the markets are overreacting in the moment to these flare-ups and he says what we're dealing with now sort of let's let's make the starting point the the russia-ukraine war which is now over over a year long but you could have maybe say it was sometime before that is he he says what we're experiencing now he thinks business leaders are undervaluing and underestimating the impact of and underinterpreting geopolitical events so What's different now? If he's right, a, do you agree with him? And b, if he's right, wh- why 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 is the business world and the why are the why is the business world in the markets undervaluing geopolitical events now relative to pre Russia Ukraine?
0: Yeah, he's he's right, and and I think he's making the observation kind of late to the game. I mean, I think that this was that is clear that I think mean, business financial leaders have undervalued geostrategic risk. I mean, going back to the turn of the century, because. We had some harbingers of of, uh, of future armed conflict, future geostrategic competition that we just didn't pay attention to because during the nineties we were over optimistic and we became complacent. We were over optimistic based on you have know, some good reasons, right? We had we'd won the Cold War, the Soviet Union collapsed. China, of course, was not yet really a, a clear competitor in, in the nineteen nineties. That didn't really occur until the the vast increases in the size of their Economy through the 1990s, and especially after World Trade Organization accession in 2001, uh, and and uh, and we we demonstrated our military prowess in the Gulf War. So we so we thought, hey, you know, an arc of history has guaranteed the primacy of our free and open societies over closed authoritarian systems. We thought, okay, well, who's a great power for uh, to, to compete with us right now? Right, this is what you know, this was. Some people called it the, at the time our unipolar moment. But some people forgot the moment part of that and thought that we were going to have predominant power and influence into the foreseeable future. And then we thought our our technological prowess, our, our technological military prowess would guarantee our security. And those warnings started to happen at the turn of the century, right? We had the, the largest mass murder terrorist attack in history on, on 9-11. Uh, terrorists perpetrated that attack bypassing our technological military prowess. And of course, uh, inflicted Tremendous damage on us, murdering you know, you know, thir- th- you know three thousand Americans, but also taking trillions of dollars out of our economy, right? So, uh, how about Vladimir Putin coming into power in the year two thousand, kind of laying it out in his, his initial speech, but then, but then uh, th- then taking a series of actions in the early two thousands, poisoning a presidential candidate in in uh, in Ukraine, various assassinations, a sustained campaign of subversion. Um, massive denial of service attacks on Estonia, invasion of Georgia in 2008. I mean, he laid it out in the speech at the Munich Security Conference 2007. What did we do? Nothing. We were complacent. You know, I, I could give many, many other examples of uh, of China's uh, behavior that demonstrated that they were applying various forms of economic aggression against us and not playing by the rules, not becoming the so-called responsible stakeholder. I uh, think you could say the same about Iran's nuclear program for example of their sustained proxy wars against us as they were complicit uh in the killing of of, of 600 uh american servicemen and women in in, in iraq uh d- during the during the Iraq war i mean so i, I think we've just been not paying attention dan and, and to ask your safe part of the question why i think it's just optimism bias confirmation bias you know self self-deception you know and and um and I think if you see what happened to some companies with a complete rending uh, of the of the economic relationship with Russia, like BP's massive losses, for example, you know some things in life are are black swans. But hey, this was a pink flamingo. <laughs> I mean, this was right in front of us for a long time. So
1: <clears throat> you, you, you say you talk about confirmation bias or, or or recency bias. So for I mean, you're a historian. In one of your many hats through almost all of modern history the west has been mired in some kind of great power conflict whether it got cold or hot there was some kind of great power conflict and then from the fall of you know the fall of the soviet union until the russia ukraine war we had 30 years of no great power what what you're saying there were signs of it and yeah. and so some commentators uh, were late to it um, and some of our government leaders were late to it but there were but but it it certainly wasn't like the sort of visible concrete form of great power conflict that had existed through the cold war and through the first world war and we can go on and on and on back through history so we kind of had this 30 year this three decade quasi break not full break but quasi break and many of our leaders in government today in the West, came of age during that time. That's when they developed their skills. That's when they developed their knowledge base. That's when they, that's what they knew. And suddenly we're in this new period, what feels like a new period as it relates to the U.S. and China and the U.S. and Russia. So first of all, how would you characterize this new period? And how much of a problem is it that our, that our leaders have no real experience with this kind of environment?
0: It's a big problem. It's, and, and it's a big problem because we have two revanchist, revisionist powers on the Eurasian landmass who are determined to rewrite the rules of international discourse, economically, from a security perspective. I would define human rights, for, for, for example, uh, and are promoting uh, their authoritarian, uh, and, and in the case of China, mercantilist model uh, in a way that is that would, that would be to our profound disadvantage if, if they're able to succeed. And so the stakes are, are quite high. But what's happened is, as and as you suggested, Dan, it is, is that our complacency has led to a couple of things. First of all, it's led to, I think, a lack of strategic competence. Our, our skills in competition have atrophied. In fact, we became so complacent in the 90s and in the 2000s that we vacated key arenas key of competition that are critical to to our future, to future prosperity and and preserving peace and, and security, and and that, that those are economic arenas of competition, for example, but also even physical arenas of competition. The South China Sea, for example, where China laid claim to the ocean, and, and so I, I think that we are behind, uh, and and I think it's sort of the as a result of of this optimism and maybe soft headed cosmopolitanism or whatever you want to call it, you know, in these terms like the global community and the international community. We've talked ourselves into this idea that that the, the world operates as a condominium of nations who cooperate through international organizations to solve global issues. That's not the case. So Gary Cohn and I wrote this essay in 2017 uh, entitled, uh, America First Doesn't Mean America Alone. I think it was in a, in a Wall Street Journal, and there's a subsequent one, I think, in the, in the Times uh, along the same theme in which we said, hey, we have to compete. You know, Competition doesn't mean confrontation. But, but it means that we have to re-enter some of these arenas of competition. For example, you know, when you think of an organization like the World Health Organization, why would that be controversial? Shouldn't we work together on global health? Well, I mean, China actively subverted that organization like it did the, the, the Human Rights uh, Council. So I, I think we have to recognize you know the need to compete and the need for us to get some of our muscle memory back to do it because our muscles are at- atrophied and I think what's even worse, the second factor is that overconfidence, of course, maybe a touch of hubris in the 90s led to some profound disappointments, right? It led to a disappointment associated with uh, the, the horrible terrorist attacks in nine eleven. But how about the disappointment of the unanticipated length and difficulty of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? Dan, I think we first met in Baghdad, 2003, like right yep. after Baghdad fell, you know, and 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 what was what I think we ought to talk more about is not whether or not we should have invaded Iraq in two thousand three, but who the heck thought it would be easy. Because remember, a lot of people thought it would be easy, you know, and so so we were flying too high in the nineties. Then we flew too low, well, you know, as a financial crisis hit, as we had an opioid epidemic, you know, as as we you know, as we saw social media increase the, the vitriol of our uh, of our partisan discourse and polarize us and and we saw you know, identity politics and new forms of, uh, of reified philosophies and critical theories and postmodernist theories interact with old forms of bigotry and racism and, and draw straight from one another, right? Create centripetal forces that are spinning us apart. I mean, so it, you know, it was a bit, so we went from going, being too high to too low, and now we have to regain not only our competence, but also our confidence, you know, our confidence in who we are as a people Our confidence in our democratic institutions and processes and and our principles, but also our confidence that we can develop and implement a competent approach to foreign policy and national security.
1: Okay. So I want to get back to that in terms of what it would look like in a moment. But before we do, uh, you say that there was, you know, we spent a lot of time debating whether or not we should have gone into Iraq in 2003 and not enough looking at why we thought it would be so easy. I, I tend to agree with you. Today, there seems to be, and you and I have talked about this, this, it's it's the only topic on which there's a real bipartisan consensus, which was confronting China in some way. And the two, the, two, the two issues where you can, the only two issues where you can find bipartisan consensus today in Washington is on confronting China and reigning in big tech. And on big tech, there may be a bipartisan consensus that big tech needs to be reined in, but each party has a different concern about big tech and therefore it makes... A sort of remedy for dealing with big tech, at least breached in, in a bipartisan sense, difficult to imagine. But that's not necessarily the case with China. I was struck by that first uh, uh, hearing, the congressional hearing, uh, Mike Gallagher's committee uh, on China uh, about a month ago. And and basically the Democrats and the Republicans, and there was that TikTok hearing also. I think that was maybe in the Commerce Committee um, in the House. The Democrats and Republicans, basically, it's the only time in a long time I've seen... Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill, basically, they could have been interchangeable uh, in terms of the toughness they were talking. So there's a consensus on confronting China in some way. Do you worry that, like the consensus before the Iraq war about how easy it would be, which was also a bipartisan consensus, A, we need to go into Iraq, and B, the sense that it would be easy, do you worry that there's not enough internal discussion about what confronting China will look like? And are we kind of, um, you know, um, tiptoeing into a military, a military confrontation, a head on military confrontation that we're not fully imagining the risks around and will regret like, well, why weren't we having a, a more robust internal conversation before we let things escalate to this degree?
0: Yeah. I, again, I think the reason why we didn't have a, an earlier discussion about this is just, is complacency. I mean, and in, in March of 2017, uh, we were rushing to get a, 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 uh, a sort of conceptual foundation in place for a new U.S. policy toward China because Xi Jinping, as you might remember, was visiting Mar-a-Lago in the first week of April. So we convened the principles committee of the National Security Council, and I read an excerpt of the Obama administration policy toward China uh, and observed that we were about to effect the most significant shift in U.S. foreign policy since the end of the Cold War. And that's because the Obama administration's policy and actually uh, the policies of previous administrations going even back to George H.W. Bush when in the post-Cold War period were based on the fundamental assumption that China, after being, being welcomed into the international community economically, diplomatically, and, um, and so forth, uh, would, would play by the rules. And as China prospered, that it would liberalize its economy and liberalize its form of governance. It was by 2017 clear that that was not the case. It was clear based on Chinese actions and, and behaviors, and and uh, and that required us to to, to take an approach of and the, and the shift that we took is toward transparent competition, and uh, and so I, I think that you know the reason we we didn't do that sooner is because we clung to that fundamentally flawed assumption for, you know, for far far too long, and I, I think for those you know who would say hey, isn't this dangerous this consensus no I think it's just way over <laughs> I'll tell you that was. That was it. Was not the consensus in 2017, Dad. I'll tell you when we when we rolled out the policy and we talked about the the policy. You know, there was a tremendous amount of pushback from those who continued to cling to that fundamentally fundamentally flawed assumption. And then I think what China's done is it, China's really helped helped create the consensus themselves. I mean, if you want to thank anybody for the consensus on China, thank Xi Jinping. You know, I kind of want to send him flowers and chocolates, man. And say thanks for helping everybody realize you know, that this is a real problem because you look at their behavior. I mean, ju- just, since COVID, I mean, how about forcing COVID on the world? How about going after anybody who tried to ring the alarm bells, uh, persecuting journalists and, and, uh, and doctors who were trying to do so, subverting the world health organization in the midst of the pandemic, adding insult to injury with this wolf warrior diplomacy, massive cyber attacks on our pharmaceutical companies and medical research, uh, activities you know, during the, during the pandemic. Uh, how about, you know, how about economic coercion during the pandemic toward Australia? And you said, hey, I think we have to try to figure out where this virus came from. You know, so they punished, they punished Australia uh, economically, same treatment for Estonia. I mean, look at what they did in the South China Sea, rammed and sunk vehicles toward this, uh, I mean, uh, vessels during this period of time, bludgeoning Indian sores to death on the Himalayan frontier. Okay. I mean, what more do you need, you know, in terms of evidence? Uh, we haven't I mean, even talked about the course of the coercion toward uh, toward Taiwan or uh, or the or the threatening sort of uh, you know, military actions uh, uh, in the Tsukakus around Japan and Northeast Asia. I mean, the list just goes on and on, you know. And so, how about like enabling the Russians as they have been uh, in, in Ukraine? Uh, the, you know, the, the the strategic partnership with Iran. You know, jo- you know joint uh, naval exercises with the Iranians and the Russians. I mean, you know, I mean, let's right. wake up to let's wake up to this, Dan. You know, and recognize that we should stop underwriting. Our own demise uh, with financial and economic uh, relationships that strengthen the People's Liberation Army, uh, that help them, you know, perpetuate or, or, or perpetrate a, a campaign of slow genocide against the Uyghurs and stifle human freedom, uh, or uh, employ their 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 statist, you know, mercantilist economic model against us in a way that fundamentally dis- disadvantages our businesses. So we, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not afraid of the consensus. I think it's just long overdue. So, uh,
1: yeah, so I mean, what you're basically saying is there was not a consensus before and we've worked through these issues and the threat has become so glaring that it's not like suddenly people, the American public, as expressed through its representatives in Washington, are on a war footing. It's that it's a delayed reaction after a lot of kind of w- walking around willfully blindfolded uh, or blindfolding ourselves uh, yeah. and, and hoping that that, that this threat you know wasn't wasn't real, and now we realize it's real, and to your point, long overdue.
0: and some people st- are struggling still. i mean if if you look at chad Yellen's recent speech on China, i mean it is it is a textbook case of cognitive dissonance textbook and and uh, and so i I think there are still some people who you know are, are disappointed they sh- and they, they should be disappointed, uh, but I think that 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 many people are still reluctant to wake up to the new reality that we have to compete.
1: Uh, our, uh, mutual friend, Hal Brands co-authored a book with, uh, Michael Beckley called the danger zone, uh, about what he regards as the coming hot war with China. And, you know, he kind of lays out that this is not a far, like a long, you know, this is not long, far out in the horizon. This is, this is happening soon, potentially really soon. So what, can you can you just summarize his take? Do you agree with it? Like, what does it look like? Are we are we actually looking at a U.S. China flare up in the is a twenty twenty five event, a twenty twenty six event?
0: Yes, we are, and 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 I think the reason we are uh, will be are because of the aspirations and the fears of the Chinese Communist Party, and, and I think there are these, these two misunderstandings we have to correct, you know, about, about the nature of the competition. What is, is a tendency to kind of just blame us, you know, because uh, we're trying to keep China down or or to say that this competition is really just part of the you know the the, the uh, Thucydides trap, you know it, and a natural sort of confrontation between a a rising power and a status quo power. But I think you have to again look look squarely at the Chinese Communist Party's actions, but also read their words. I mean one of the, the the great the great scholar of of communist China, Frank Dakota, I highly recommend his you know his uh his uh his five volumes now on on the, on the party um you know he, he said that people tend to to when they look at China to treat secondary sources as primary and primary sources as secondary but if you look at what Xi Jinping's saying you know he's preparing the Chinese people for war he was talking about the need to make sacrifices he's he's talking about the situation today uh, and 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 uh, and portraying it as analogous to Mao's decision to, inter, to intervene in korea right at, at which which they call the war of american aggression and he calls it a, you know, a preemptive uh, blow that mal delivered to prevent another hundred blows and so as the chinese uh economy struggles you know as uh, as the party you know uh, fails uh, because of its own decisions the frailties in the economy uh based on its their their, their race to surpass us the uh you know the, the the focus on economic growth to a fault, where they've incurred so much debt. You see this playing out in the real estate sector. I think we're going to see is who are they going to blame? They're going to blame us, right? And that's going to lead to I think a increase in jingoistic nationalist rhetoric, and it's going to lead to I, I think potentially more aggression oriented on Taiwan or in in the South China Sea. And I think Xi Jinping thinks he has he has maybe only a, a fleeting window of opportunity to act. You know to act before. Maybe China grows old before it can grow rich. You know, maybe act before uh, Taiwan strengthens its defenses further. And we have some big events coming up: the Taiwanese election in February, for example, U.S. election in twenty twenty four. And I think, I think it, the danger is if they portray weakness, which leads to kind of the second misunderstanding. You know that that what we do to compete might be seen as provocative. You know, you know what provocative. Weakness is provocative. I mean, if you look at the at the at the uh, and Russia's renewed invasion of Ukraine, it followed the disastrous surrender to a terrorist organization and withdrawal from Afghanistan. And Putin looked at us, Xi Jinping looked at us, us being the West, the United States in particular, they've got nothing. You know, in fact, they said as much in, in, uh, in Beijing just prior to the Olympics and just prior to the reinvasion of Ukraine. They said, they said basically, you're over, United States. You're over uh, in the West. This is the new era of international relations. Get used to us being in charge. So I think we have to really recognize that, you know, of Reagan was right, you know, peace through strength. And and uh, and not that we want to be, you know, beating our chests about it or anything, but we need just to just demonstrate real military capabilities. And we have to demonstrate real resolve to compete economically and to bolster supply chains and to ensure that we don't trade energy dependency that we had like in the Middle East in the 1970s for, for an energy dependency on China associated with hardware and equipment uh that necessary for for the, the transition to renewable energy sources you know i'm talking about solar panels and wind turbines and the upstream components and the rare earths associated with those are battery manufacturing we need to really do quite a bit dan you know and we're already behind
1: frank dakota he's the, the book it, the one volume i i, I know is the and, and read parts of is the i would say devour but my uh, my friend John, who knows, says whenever time I he I say I've devoured a book, he doesn't believe me because he doesn't think I could devour that many books. So it's true. Sometimes I dip in and out of books, and that the, the Dakota book on famine is one of them. But it's a multi-volume. You're saying no. he's got many it's volumes.
0: That Al, great. Famine is uh, that's right. the one. That's the one on uh, yeah. the one on the great beat forward, right? Right. Then he, then what he did is that was the first one he wrote. Then he then he wrote the the sequel to that, uh, which was on on the, uh, the cultural revolution. Then he wrote the prequel to both of those, which is the history of the party, uh, going all the way up to 48, 49, uh, up, really up to the, up to the, the great Leap forward. And then the last volume is, is, uh, is the party sis Mao, you know, yeah. and I'm telling t- they're just, they're, I, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, we'll put them all, we'll put them all in the show notes. He's yeah. He's he's a force of nature. Uh, if, if China, tries to take Taiwan militarily, do you think there's any way the U.S. does not get involved? Is there a world in which we don't get involved? And doesn't China know that?
0: Well, yeah, we will be involved, right? right. I, mean, I mean, just look at at, uh, at microprocessors, semiconductors, you know, and I mean, the world goes into global depression. I mean, that's what happens uh, if that supply chain is disrupted. Now, we're in a race to try to bolster that supply chain, obviously, with factories everywhere from, you know, South Korea to, to Japan, to, you know, to Ohio, to Texas, to, to New York and so forth. But, but, uh, but, you know, that's going to take five, five years, you know, as a, as a conservative estimate. So I I think, uh, I think the world would be involved for sure anyway, you know, and, and I, I, you know, there's a big debate now, Dan, I don't really know what to do about this, you know, about the, the strategic ambiguity policy and whether or not we should remove strategic ambiguity, which means that, that we don't explicitly uh, enter into a, a defensive alliance with Taiwan and it's not clear whether we're going to be uh, where we intervene or not and the idea with strategic ambiguity was that that would be sufficient to deter the Chinese Communist Party but also it would it would it would provide impetus you know for uh, for the Taiwanese to provide for their own defense um, but you know president biden's kind of almost almost removed it you know he, he said you know pre- he's known for making misstatements of course but if this is a mistake, and he's made that mistake three or four times, right? And and pretty clearly. So so I think that commitment seems to have been made. Now, what does that mean in reality? What happens if there's a soft or a hard blockade of Taiwan? How do we respond? You know, I think we do respond. You know, I think we and we have tremendous capabilities, Dan. You know, I, I think there has been uh, obviously a recognition based on the war in Ukraine that we've been underinvesting in some key sectors of, of our defense uh, innovation base and industrial base. Uh, and we've, we've got to really work hard, you know, to, to improve our capacity, to bolster supply chains, to, for, to, uh, to manufacture munitions and to, you know, address the bow wave of deferred military modernization, to address the the bow wave of, of, of already purchased weapons, uh, $19 billion worth uh, to Taiwan. So there's a lot, a lot of work to do, but, you know, invading, yeah, Taiwan would be kind of a tough thing, you know? And and if you look at just the U.S. subsurface capability, our submarine capability, I think that people's of British Army would be would be you know they, it'd be a rude awakening for them uh, that that is analogous to the rude awakening that the Russians had with the reinvasion of Ukraine. You know, Taiwan is a it, it is an island the size of Maryland. It's 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 mountainous in the west. It's densely populated in massive urban areas in in the east. There are only a couple of good landing places. Only a couple of months when the when the seas are are amenable, you know, to uh, to a cross strait invasion. It's about 150 miles across. Now there, I mean, there are other things they could do with the islands that are you know uh, just a couple of miles away and so forth. But if they if they're looking at a full you know invasion and subjugation uh, of, of Taiwan, you know, it's not clear to me that they could pull it off. That the People's Liberation Army could pull it off. Can you?
1: Tell us, and then I want to move to a couple quick other topics. But can you tell us where you see the current Russia-Ukraine war where it's heading uh, over the next few months, particularly as we head deep into the summer?
0: Well, I, I think it's, it's important to assess the the relative strength of Russia and Ukraine based on capability and capacity. You know how, how effective their military forces can be in terms of of uh, of operating it, it, it with combined arms and joint capabilities and a sufficient scale and for ample duration to accomplish the war aims, but then also to look at the will factor, the will it, it, uh, within the fighting forces, but also the will of their national leadership and those who are support that national leadership. So let's look at capability. Hey, I, the Russian military is spent conventionally. I mean, their army, for sure, is spent conventionally, not all their joint capabilities, certainly not their nuclear forces or their air forces and not all their naval forces and so forth. But but their army, I think, Dan, must be at the brink of moral collapse. You, you see that with some of the, you know, the hodgepodge forces, the Wagner, Wagner group forces, some of their parachute forces, and these, you know, uh, th- these Donetsk Republic militias around Bakhmut that are just, uh, that they're just suffering unsustainable casualties. And if you look at the overall casualties they'd suffered, you know, <laughs> You know, the, 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 the term decimation comes from the idea that when a force is decimated, it takes one-tenth losses that it loses its combat effectiveness. You know, they're more than decimated. They can't, they can't regenerate the, the, uh, the combat capabilities uh, that, that, that they've lost. Uh, and and, uh, and so, they, so they can't win conventionally. But what they've done is they've developed, you know, very uh, extensive defenses. And the question is, okay, now on the Ukrainian side, uh, they have the will. Have they been able to disengage enough forces and train them adequately and provide them with the range of capabilities they need for a sustained offensive? You know, and we're going to see that pretty soon. And and I, I believe that if they can penetrate those defenses and turn the Russians out uh, of the defenses along the coast and the Sea of Azov and, and the Black Sea, uh, then that Ukraine becomes economically viable again, and the Ukrainian armed forces can place Russian. Uh, 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 you know, logistics facilities and bases in Crimea in a position where they're no longer tenable. You're starting to see that now with some of the Ukrainian long-range strikes uh, against depots, against air- aircraft. I mean, they, the Ukrainians shot down two aircraft over Russian territory in the last week. And so these strikes in depth are are meant to prepare for the offensive. But once the offensive starts, you know, that's when you have to combine mobile protected firepower, protected mobility, skilled infantry, fires, aviation capabilities, electromagnetic warfare, along with engineering. Okay. You're going to see combat engineering being decisive here. They're going to have to make river crossings, which the Russians have failed to do. And the Ukrainians have not yet attempted uh, a, a, a river crossing under in contact with an enemy. Multiple obstacle crossings. I mean, hey, it, this is not an easy military problem to, to, to conduct a sustained offensive against prepared defenses. So- I, I, I don't know, Dan. I, I my my gut tells me the Ukrainians can do it because of the the paucity of Russian will and the degree to which they've suffered unsustainable levels of casualties. And um, and so you know, the time is now to give the the, the Ukrainians everything we can. I mean, I was so glad to see the United Kingdom, you know, uh, provide some of these long range missile capabilities. You know it's important to defend the Ukrainians from these onslaughts that we've seen over the the past week of massive missile strikes. I mean, to to you know to to defend against these missiles, you have to be able to shoot down the arrows, but you also have to be able to kill the archer. You know, and and so they need these long-range capabilities for defensive purposes as well as uh, to to disrupt the enemy's command and control and their fires capabilities in depth as they initiate this offensive.
1: There's a lot uh, HR on the UK take on russia ukraine and the military military role in your recent episode of battlegrounds your podcast with general nick carter uh from um from the uk military that i highly recommend i wanted just before we run out of time i want to jump to a few of our questions we said you were going to be on we got a ton of them we can't get to all of them but there's a huge hr fan base out there so i'm just going to try to rattle off a couple of these here we go
0: this is Corey Gruber from virginia General McMasters, why is there a near wholesale lack of accountability for senior military leaders? Have they been batting a 1,000 for the last two decades?
1: It's like right out of uh, Dereliction of Duty, your book. So what's your response?
0: Yeah, well, of, of course, military leaders should be held accountable, responsible, you know, for uh, for military operations and efforts. But, it, you know, as, as Sir Michael Howard, the great historian, has said, and I don't want to make excuses for anybody, but, you know, he said that, that he said most often, you know, the causes of victory and defeat are found far from the battlefield. And I would say that in in our most recent frustrations in, in Iraq, but especially in Afghanistan, those frustrations were caused, I think, by, by fundamentally flawed and inconsistent policies and strategies that were created in Washington. You know, the, the war in Afghanistan, you know, which is heartbreaking for me, was not a twenty-year war. It was a one-year war fought twenty times over, and uh, and I described this in, in you know, the the uh, the inconsistency and the and the fundamentally flawed nature of those strategies in 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 the book Battlegrounds. If anybody's interested in more uh, on it, and then and then uh, I, not 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 to take anything away from this awesome podcast, but but I I vent I I vented on Afghanistan uh, with Barry Weiss, who asked this this question uh, to me on her Honestly podcast uh, right after the disastrous. Uh, retreat, you know. I, I think uh, from as always, you can call it from Afghanistan uh, in in August, September of of uh, you know of twenty twenty one. So, um, I, I am, uh, you know, I am sympathetic to your question, but you know, ultimately, as I wrote in dereliction of duty, you know, a president can get the military advice, you know, he or she wants based on the way they structure that that relationship, and I think it's quite clear that across both the Trump and the and the Biden administrations those two presidents prioritized withdrawal over the achievement of any kind of worthwhile outcome i uh, consistent with our interests in afghanistan
1: all right i'm going to uh i mean it's it is amazing when you think about it from the re from the perspective of many parts of the world well it's particularly the middle east that they've had multiple administrations from different parties focused on some kind of withdrawal from from the region um and how could they think talk about a bipartisan consensus Uh, Here's another question for you. A military question for Mr. McMaster. The West has been trying to stop the Iranian nuclear program for decades. At this late date, does Iran have any nuclear infrastructure that could be hit successfully by a military strike? I would think that after all this time, the Iranians have all of its nuclear sites buried so deep or hardened to such an extent that any military effort by the U.S. or Israel would have very little impact. In other words, is the threat of military action an empty one? My name is Joseph. Thank you for your answer.
0: I I think it's important to recognize that any kind of a strike, a single strike, uh, would probably be inadequate. That there would have to be a sustained campaign to block Iran's path uh, toward a, a nuclear weapon that could threaten Israel with destruction. Uh, I, I believe that it's going to happen. I mean, if if, if Iran doesn't uh, enter into some kind of agreement that provides a high degree of transparency and, and uh very rigorous, you know, verification mechanisms um, and inspection regime uh, then I think, you know, the, the begging doctrine is alive and well in, in Israel, kind of across the political spectrum. So, this is something to think about and to and to consider how something like this would happen—a strike to, a, and a series of strikes and really a sustained campaign to block Iran's path to the most destructive weapons on earth. I think it would have to include you know a range of, of of capabilities that would have to be disrupted. You know, not only nuclear facilities but those involved with the program that have knowledge or or where that knowledge base is stored. Of course, it's tied to the to, to Iran's missile program. You know, as well. These aren't the only weapons of mass destruction either. Uh, that uh, that... So
1: to be clear, it's not just just for our listeners. It's not just about their nuclear capability. It's about their ability to to take that nuclear capability right. and deliver it in the form of a weapon, which is dependent on their missile development program.
0: Right, to, and, and to threaten Israel with destruction. Right, and and of course, what they're doing is trying to trying to, to trying to deter uh, Israel through these capabilities, but also through their proxy forces. Uh, In southern Lebanon and Gaza, and now in Syria, I mean, they've been trying to place a proxy army on the border of Israel and Syria, and so it's 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 tied. The effort to block their path to a nuclear weapon is also tied to addressing Iran's you know four-decade-plus-long proxy war they've been waging against you know the United States, Israel, and their Arab neighbors. So I think what you really need is a comprehensive approach, a comprehensive approach to the threats that Iran poses to to international security and. And we should be working together with partners and allies in the region. But of course, our idiotic policies toward the Middle East, I think, have set us back quite a bit uh, with, with some of our Arab our, our partners and, and allies. And we have to really, I think, work hard uh, to regain lost ground in those relationships.
1: Uh, all right. We will leave it there, H.R. Thanks for doing this. I, I said at the beginning we would talk about their election of duty. While well, we really didn't get into it that the that one of those questions um teed it up and and I will put that book in the show notes. I highly recommend it. It is a book I actually devoured, John. Uh and uh and uh it's it's really about military uh you know what what led to decision making in the Vietnam War. And um anyways, it's 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 like one of the three or four books I recommend to people interested in foreign policy and decision making uh, in the U S um, HR, we're gonna have to have you back. Cause we had a lot of questions that we didn't get to, uh, but sadly, given the state of affairs in the world, they will all be relevant. Uh, they will continue to be relevant those questions. So we'll just put them, uh, in our inventory system and we will repurpose them when you are next on. That is a way of me securing an early commitment to have you back until then. Uh, thanks for coming on.
0: Hey Dan, gr- great to be with you. And you know, when I made the transition, you know, from uniform to Silicon Valley, I reread Startup Nation again, uh, and uh, and so I, I just want to thank you for for that book. It helped me understand Israel better. I went to the Museum of Innovation when I visited Tel Aviv, you know, and and uh, and your book was just a great primer for my my last visit to Israel, as well as a primer for my uh, understanding kind of the, the importance of of an innovation ecosystem like we have here in Silicon Valley, as well
1: thank you uh and the reason he's saying here in silicon valley is because we're recording this he's sitting at his office at the hoover institute in uh stanford university in case anyone is mentioning i'm looking at you HR. you got like a fantastic view which is reasonable that
0: Cruz mountains out those windows and south bay out the other i'm in the literal ivory tower here at the hoover tower a little better than fallujah <laughs> all, right. all right
1: take care thanks for that thanks for the plug for startup nation i'll talk to you soon my friend That's our show for today. To keep up with H.R. McMaster, you can track him down at the Hoover Institution. That's hoover.org. You can also find him at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. We'll post his books and his podcasts in the show notes. We had one technical hiccup when we recorded this episode, choppy Wi-Fi at Stanford. I guess they're not paying their phone bills. So we weren't able to get to all the questions. A couple of the questions that you had sent in uh, fell off. We only were able to get to one of them. But when we have Tyler on, we will be sure to make up for it and get to more of your questions. So please send them in to dan at unlocked.fm. Just keep it to under 30 seconds, record it, and send it in. And some of the questions you all sent in for HR are readily usable for future guests, whether it's HR or anyone else on geopolitics. So we'll figure out a way to play a couple of those questions for future guests because sadly those questions and the issues raised in them are not going anywhere anytime soon. Call Back is produced by Elon Benatar. Until next time, I'm your host, Dan Seymour.